0: that through them we might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we open God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, again, we just thank you for all that you provide for us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the wonderful things that we are learning in our study of Ephesians, especially the emphasis here in that there is now in this church age a unique entity, the body of Christ, that came into existence on the day of Pentecost in 33 A.D. and has survived through these many centuries and will continue to survive and flourish until our Lord returns at the rapture. And that we have a distinctive purpose and role in this dispensation and have been granted so many uh, blessings and assets and privileges because of our position in Christ. And Father, as we continue to study, we pray that you might challenge us, encourage us, strengthen us in our inner man, as Paul prays, that realizing all that we are and all that we have is because of Christ and because of our position in him, and that that should be the motivation for our growth, for our focus upon you, and that that we might uh, just have that great hunger to know the truth, as Paul talks about it in this passage that we have laid aside the lie, and now we have to know the truth, speak truth to our neighbor as we are renewed in the spirit of our thinking. And so, Father, we pray that we can be challenged again today by your word in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 and spend a little time completing some of the thoughts that... I was developing last time, so we need to have some review, and that is always important for getting things locked down into our thinking. And so that today, and somehow the background on this slide got messed up, but the title is We're Members of One Another in Ephesians 4.25. And we're down into this section Uh, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit in verses 25 to 32, which begins a very lengthy section going down to 6, 8, where there are numerous uh, commands either through the use of imperatives or through the use of imperatival participles or infinitives, different ways in which commands are expressed to us. And this is all related to understanding that as new those who have put off the old man and have put on the new, that with that comes a new code of conduct. Ephesians 2.15 says that having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is Christ abolished in his flesh on the cross, the enmity. Now what's this enmity? This is a state of hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile. And this was embodied even in the Mosaic law that there were distinctions between Jew and Gentile in the Old Testament related to God's plan and purposes for each. But in the New Testament, he has created in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Now, this really is the most clear statement of Scripture defining what the new man is. And we talked about this when we first hit that passage, and that is so important to understand that the new man is our new position in Christ. It's not some a new, that each of us is not a new entity, but we are all placed into the body of Christ by the baptism, by the Spirit at the instant of salvation, so that at that point we have, we are blessed positionally with all of these spiritual assets. And that's what Ephesians is talking about. Ephesians one three says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, emphasizing our new position in Christ. And so we came down to verse 25, which we've been talking about that is poorly translated. And I pointed out the issues there and the point it, the best translation is the one I've put up there underneath it. For this reason, because you have already put off the lie. And that is a better, it's not lying, it's not a participle, it's not a gerund, it is a noun with an article in the Greek. So it should be translated as such, but for some reason, almost no translation does that. We've already put off the lie. Let each one of you speak truth. Now, in Greek, the word truth does not have an article in front of it. In English, to make it definite, we use a definite article. In fact, it's wrong when you're talking about Greek to speak of a definite article. You just speak of the article because there's no indefinite article. Indefinite article is a or an. Okay, so that now that you're confused. Um, so in Greek, there's a number of different nuances to having the article or not having the article. And so when a noun does not have the article, doesn't mean it's not definite. That one of the other reasons for doing that is to emphasize its quality. But in English, we would bring that out more by using the article. That's why I put it in brackets. We're to speak the truth. We're to speak about the truth of God, that which He has, uh, revealed to us. So we have put off the lie that happened positionally when we, uh, were born from above and were baptized by the Spirit. We're no longer, our position is no longer in Adam, but is in Christ. And so we put off the old man. Now, one of the ways in which we are to distinguish our behavior is that we are to speak the truth with our neighbor. So that is the focal point of this quote. And this is uh, an important quote. It comes from um, Zechariah 8.16. Now, the focal point here is let each one of you... Speak the truth with his neighbor. So who who's the neighbor here? Uh, that language actually comes out of uh, Leviticus 19.18, which is uh, also reiterated several times in the New Testament, nine different times it's quoted, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in the original context, it's easy to think of neighbor as... Anyone who lives in your proximity. And that's how it's used when Jesus is explaining this to the lawyer uh, about the question about who is a neighbor, and he uses the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so here you have a Jew that is going to be um, mugged on the way to Jericho and beaten up, and the priest goes by, the Levite goes by. But they don't do anything. They ignore him. But this Samaritan who is the object of hatred by any Jew, they despise the Samaritans. The prejudice against the Samaritans was as extreme as any racial prejudice we might have in our culture. And yet the Samaritan stops and takes care of this Jew who has been uh, badly beaten up and injured, takes him to a, an inn, sees to his needs, pays the bill, gets him fresh clothes. And this is the picture of love that we have in the Scripture, is that that being engaged in doing what is best and what is right according to God's standard. And so that defines neighbor, but this is different in this particular context, and that is because it is modified by a causal phrase at the end, a causal clause, rather, because we are members of one another. So the we and the members of one another tell us that this is talking about the neighbor in a more restricted sense. Of those who are in the body of Christ, it takes us back to John thirteen thirty four and thirty five when Jesus uh, gave a mission statement to uh, the church, and he said that we are to love one another, even as he loved us. Uh, we are to love one another, and by this all will know that you are my disciples. We're loving one another. That one another there is like we have here and it refers to others in the body of Christ. That is not to say that we don't love those outside the body of Christ, but the point here is that because of the topic was set back in the beginning of Ephesians uh, 4, where it emphasizes in verse 3 that we are uh, to be rigorous in maintaining the unity so what, one of the things that breaks the unity is bitterness and anger and clamor. And see, that's what comes up when you get down to verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you. Why? Because that breaks up the unity. And so we have to always contextualize passages to make sure we uh, interpret them correctly. So this quotation comes out of Zechariah 816. And Zechariah 816 as a whole is given to Israel. Uh, This quotation is an exact uh, reflection of what's in the Greek translation in in the Septuagint. And God is speaking to the remnant of Israel in this context. And so the neighbor here is not quite like the neighbor in as Jesus applies it with the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, here the neighbor is restricted to Israel, those who are also in that covenant community under the Abrahamic covenant. So there there is that that limitation there that that does not mean that you can be hostile and aggressive and nasty to those who are not but the emphasis is that within the Old Testament covenant community of Israel and within the church age there should be a manifestation of love that is not seen elsewhere and that that is defined but here the focus is on speaking truth with his neighbor, which we have talked about, and that the context here that truth is in Jesus, which is stated in uh, just a few verses earlier in verse 21, that truth relates to the teaching of Scripture, that which is contained in the 66 books of the Bible. And... It is in contrast to the lie which we've studied the last couple of weeks, which is the devil's worldview, and is ultimately grounded in a denial of the creator-creature distinction. And the denial of that is then manifest in an independence or autonomy from God and an antagonism toward God, and we've studied that many, many times. So, the origin of truth is with god psalm eighty six fifteen eighty nine fourteen and psalm one hundred and five all emphasize that uh, God is f- characterized by truth, and therefore, because God is eternal and never changing immutable that truth is eternal and never changing and is immutable. Now that just runs flat in the face of the finite human understanding of truth. And in every generation, every decade, there are various challenges to truth by human viewpoint. It all began... Uh, in eternity past with Satan's rebellion against God. And the way we normally see this manifest, even among lots of Christians, they, they, they think this way. It, it still comes into their culture, their, their post-salvation thinking because that's the way they thought as an unbeliever. When we make statements, and I hear, I've heard this many times, well, God is fair, God is, uh, God is loving, uh, God is righteous, uh, these statements, the average person has his own opinion of the definition of those terms, that for him love means certain things. Just talk to any unbeliever or a lot of Christians who are confused on what love is, and you're going to, um, you're going to come up with some really bizarre observations. In the last several months, ever since I fell and and injured my hand i 've been having to go through physical therapy i 've got an interesting physical therapist i maybe one day i 'll invite him here, but he grew up in a very legalistic Lutheran background, and he has uh, a, some strange ideas and just and he, and will engage in all kinds of conversations while he 's doing different things to my hands and I'm having to do different exercises. And and I bet you we have gotten off onto this topic several times. So you never know what kind of situation God's going to put you in because he'll make some statement. Well, don't you think that, that God is fair and he'll do this wisely? I say, well, w- wait a minute. What's your definition of fairness? Because the Bible says you get your definition of fairness from God's nature as it's defined in scripture not from your idea of what fairness is and then we get into an all, all other you know di- uh, discussion on different things so it's it's real squirrely um but this is the average person they have their autonomously derived idea of what truth is, what righteousness is, what justice is. And so they've absorbed in our culture certain ideas of social justice, certain ideas of truth. And so when we say God is truth, they define truth as something relative. So they're really open to no pun intended, open theism and openness of God, ideas that God doesn't really know what's going to happen in the future, but he's a good guesser. So he gets it right most of the time, but but he's open to change. Now, I'm going to come back talk about this. I, I've been introducing little phrases, little ideas. Along the way, the last uh, five or six weeks, because we're going to get down to a little heavier discussion and I've got to kind of prime the pump a little bit so I don't dump a whole lot of new information on you at one time. This openness idea called open, uh, openness of God or open, uh, open theology is the idea that God really doesn't know what's going to happen in the future and that God is uh, uh, is always adapting, which means God's always changing. So one of the inherent problems in this is their view of, of that God is not really immutable. And If God isn't immutable, then we don't have no ultimate stability. Lots of problems with that. But the problem is, ultimately, is definitions are derived from human culture and human experience and then imposed... And so when humans have this independent idea of these terms, and then they think that God has to conform to their definition of truth or righteousness or justice, and if God does certain things that don't match their view of what is fair or right or just, then God's not that, and so they reject the whole idea of God. But we understand that God defines what truth, righteousness, justice, love, holiness, what those terms mean. God defines them, and we have to understand this, uh, from studying scripture and what God, what God does. So the lie, as we've studied, is grounded on a rejection of the creator-creature or creator-creature uh, distinction. And that began with the fall of Halal bin Shakar, who is Satan. That is actually the Hebrew term used in Isaiah 14, 13 through 14, and uh, his arrogance is seen both there and in Ezekiel 28, uh, 14 through 17. And in those passages, we see that Satan sought to be superior to the creator. So he denies the creator-creature distinction. Jesus said that he's the father of lies. He's was talking to the Pharisees. He said, you're of your father, the devil the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. See, the Bible assumes there is something called the truth. It's not relative. It is absolute and concrete he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. So we see this is laid down there, Genesis three one through uh, three one and three four and five. We have looked at that Satan is basically claiming that God did not tell Adam and Eve the truth. He's insinuating that God is really a liar and he's really self absorbed because he doesn't want you to be like him. And that leads to the second claim that the creature has the right to judge and evaluate God's statements and determine whether God really is right or not. That's the height of arrogance. Third, we saw that the creature has the knowledge to be able to evaluate God's claims. And fourth, that the creature must be as intelligent and powerful as God and be able to determine his own reality. And unfortunately, we see this uh, manifest so much uh, today in people's lives. People are just creating their own sense of right and wrong. Uh, all of this was summarized in this cover from Moody Monthly three decades ago. It's and When it was talking about the new age, it's a new age old lie. Well, it's always the old lie, just packaged uh, differently. Romans one twenty five identifies this as uh, those who uh, exchange the truth uh, of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. So the lie is grounded on a rejection of the creator-creature and creator-creature distinction. It rejects divine authority in place of creaturely authority. That means our thinking has to remain independent from God. We dare not submit to his authority. That leads to hostility towards God and that we have the power knowledge uh uh, and it denies that God has the power uh, or knowledge to reveal himself propositionally or to preserve his creation. So uh, the, basically it's saying there's no distinction between the creator and the creation, that the creature cannot know God uh, because God is a liar and humans are smarter than God and humans are equal to God. It's putting human, humanity on the throne. So it's, that's exactly what's manifest in this chart. Now, what's the result of this? What results in this is we project our values onto something that we then label God. Now, not everyone here has gone through the details of the chain of being or continuity of being idea that I covered in detail on Tuesday night in Judges. But you are familiar with some of the arguments that are used for the existence of God. Uh, One of the ancient forms of that was the uh, structure of an argument by Aristotle, but it led you back to an unmoved mover, and that was labeled God. And so for a century, people have bought into these arguments for the existence of God when the reality is they got to something that was there, but they didn't know what that something is. Because to know that that something is God, you have to know the attributes of God, and they can only get that from divine revelation. So what they label as God isn't God. It's just something that they think is there. And the result of that, if you don't know what's there and he hasn't spoken, then we make up our own rules. And that we saw in Judges is the path to disaster. Each person becomes their own little god that 's what happened when Eve ate the fruit. She becomes her own little god that 's what Satan enticed her with. You can become like God, and so everybody becomes their own little God, and the result is is chaos and life, liberty, stability, and prosperity all go away. You have to have order to have a, a, a meaningful life to have stability, to have liberty. All of that is grounded on having order, and when you don't have, when the vast number of people in a culture don't have order in their souls, and their souls are filled with chaos, then the culture is going to fill, be filled with chaos, and the world becomes filled with chaos, and that's exactly what, what we've been seeing. Now, today, the worldview that is most dominant in America and in Western civilization is postmodernism but to understand postmodernism we have to understand modernism they couldn't figure out what it was what what a good name would be for postmodernism so they were not very creative in naming it they knew what the modern was because it was in contrast to all those antiquated things that were believed like god and the bible and religion And so that characterized modernism. We're modern. We're not like those superstitious ancients. But when modernism collapsed, and uh, that collapse was apparent by the end of the 19th century, they knew something new, some new view of reality was developing. And so it became known as postmodernism, whatever comes after modernism. And in many ways it is opposed to modernism, but it isn't any closer to Christianity. It is as opposed to Christianity as modernism was. So modernism is the belief that man can use his reason and or experience to arrive at truth independently of any special divine revelation. Now, by truth, we mean an overarching truth, absolute truth. Uh, we're not talking about a lower case t truth, such as 1 plus 1 equals 2. But once you reject absolutes, then you even get to the point in postmodernism where 1 plus 1 can equal anything you want it to equal and thus you destroy the teaching of arithmetic and mathematics in education, and that is happening today. And they say that, well, learning math, learning absolutes like that, that's racist. But everything is racist, according to their view. So anyway, the idea in modernism is that everything, including humans, derived from a physical material universe When no matter when you push it back what was before that what was before that what was before that and the prominent theory uh although now there's evidence against it and so everybody's wobbly uh is the big bang and what you had if you go back far enough is all matter and energy is just in one extremely dense blob that's then explodes so it all comes from something physical, material. There's nothing immaterial uh, from the very beginning. So the introduction of something immaterial such as spirits or a soul uh, would be contrary to this worldview. So according to this, nothing exists beyond that which can be perceived by our senses or can be deduced by reason. A third aspect of modernism is that humans are self-governing. Now you have to make a distinction here. It's kind of it's interesting how this develops, because at the beginning in the Enlightenment you still had a heavy influence of theism on the thinking of the these early moderns, and so they believed man is free. He's free from all authority was what they were how they were using the term and that he's free to choose his own direction. But what's interesting is that by the time you get into the latter part of the modernist period is that if everything is physical and material, then everything has to be ultimately determined by natural laws. So they became more consistent, uh, with their with their presuppositions, so there's there's a change that takes place here, and so you will see, and I have seen, for example, in um, McCallum's book on Death of Truth, you see almost a contradiction in what some of their charts say, and you have to read the text, or you won't realize why they're different. Um, and then the last one is they they were very optimistic. Mo- modernism was uh, science can bring us health and happiness, science gives us hope, and we can overcome all the problems. Because if starting with their presupposition that everything develops from that which is purely material, then there's no such thing as sin. And we can get rid of that old antiquated idea of sin and salvation and a Savior. We don't need any of that because we're not sinners. And if we're not sinners then we are improvable on our own. And if we're improvable on our own, then as a mass of people, we are improvable. And so we can actually achieve perfection. And once they start getting into that form of thinking by the early 19th century, you start to see this word progress showing up more and more. And that's the root of of what we today refer to as progressivism. And progressivism is the idea that we're getting better and better every day in every way, and that we are moving society towards a uh, a goal where we will arrive at some sort of utopia. That's the idea. So this is was a focus of modernism. And modernism was... Pretty s- sick and on its deathbed ideologically in the, in academia by the late 19th century and it was it died and was buried on the fields of Flanders in World War One. World War I, we had modern weapons. We had machine guns, and we had tanks, and we had hand grenades. They weren't like they are today, but they, that was the first time that the, there was really modern warfare, and it was so devastating, and the death rate was so high that it, it killed optimism and hope because... Everything that science brought that was good it also brought a lot of evil, the technology of war, and so that killed optimism of uh, the optimism of modernism and so this is when actually you 're seeing a shift to something else that, that the intellectuals were beginning to reject. Uh, science can't bring us hope and happiness. Uh, science can't bring us stability. Science can't uh, develop progress. Look at what we just did. So there has to be something else. And so they reject science. They reject empiricism and rationalism as a means to finding hope and happiness. Well, once you've done that, you have to, the, the only direction you can go is mysticism. Now, I believe that you already had incipient mysticism and rationalism, but that's another discussion. Uh, But you always get this problem. Man, basically, on his own, apart from God, it's all about what goes on between his ears. And whether it's some sort of intuitive hot flash like mysticism or whether it's reasoned out on the basis of logic it's still what's going on between man's ears without any external input from a, uh, special revelation. So this is, this is modernism and it produced a rationalistic optimism that collapses by the beginning of the, uh, 20th, uh, 20th century. And I'm basing a lot of this on, uh, David McCallum's book, uh, which is called the death of truth. So modernism, let me see, it may have duplicated this chart inadvertently. Uh, so the bottom line is humankind is progressing. Now what's postmodernism? Postmodernism says that humans are cogs in a social machine. Now it's very important to grasp that. Because when we think about what is being said about society and social justice and social improvement today, it comes back to this in in postmodernism, that humans are a cog in a social machine. We're primarily social beings. And so it's that social machine that shapes our thinking, shapes who we are. Now, there's always an element of truth in a lot of this. But what they're going to say is we have to change society in order to bring in that utopia. And that's, that is where you take this shift to, to Marxism, because Marxism is one of several, uh, competing views that lead to a, a utopia that comes not from Christ, but from man. And so basically what they've done, what happened historically is in the 19th century, you begin with a view of the kingdom as the kingdom of Christ. And then as you got into pro- progressivism, and by the teens and 20s of the early 1800s, uh, you're going to bring in that kingdom by by. By man, by political theory, and this is within Christianity, it's post-millennialism, that you're going to bring in the kingdom by getting rid of these social sins, sins like slavery, sins like um, uh, women's, uh, the lack of women's rights, sins like uh, child labor and other issues related to labor, sins like uh, the use of alcohol. So that was attempted. It, it basically lays out the history of the United States over the last um, 200 years, trying to deal with all these social sins to bring in the kingdom. But by the 1840s or 1850s, the kingdom is no longer the kingdom of Christ. It's a man-based kingdom that is going to be brought in through government, and that's what's at the essence of progressivism. So the people, their view is the people are the product of their culture. They don't really have any freedom, and they only imagine that they are uh, self-governing. Self-gover- now, one of the things I want to note here is that both modernism and postmodernism have penetrated the evangelical church to a large degree so that you hear many weird, much weird stuff coming out of uh, pulpits, for example, Wheaton College, who was uh, is always considered to be an evangelical school, has never had a sound view of uh, a literal Genesis. That's always been a weakness there, and so they reject that. They they opt for a scientific explanation of origins rather than the biblical view of origins, and that has led them eventually to become. Um, uh, anti-Christian Zionist, and many other things. So they get sucked into all of that, and they produce people who go out and pastor churches, and so the churches be- get that way, and so everything really gets, gets messed up. In postmodernism, reason, rationality, and objective truth are myths. You can't get to objective truth. Everybody has their own truth. Everybody makes up their own values. And so for them, progress is a code word that was used by modernists to justify the domination by Europeans, European culture of other cultures. Now, in the last probably 15 to 20 years, they've morphed the definition of progressivism to stay current with postmodernism, which is what we're seeing to a large degree today. But in contrast, what the Bible teaches, I mean, there's a complete opposite uh, view of the scriptures. It starts with the fact that human beings are not physical material only, but they are created in the image and likeness of God. They have an immaterial soul and spirit that reflects the makeup of God. Second, that God has granted human beings uh, genuine volition and personal responsibility for the decisions that they make. Third, that God gave man the ability to observe and to reason, but that must be done under the divine authority of special revelation. So this makes the human beings distinct and unique, of all of God's creation. And so every human being should be, create, should be treated in this sort of unique and special way. No matter what has happened to them, whatever birth defects there may be, whatever uh, physical or mental uh, challenges they might face, there's every human being, though our, the image is corrupted by sin, we're still in the image and likeness of God. And therefore, every human being and every human life has value because of this distinctiveness. And therefore, every human being is endowed with certain inalienable rights. That's where this comes from. But see, if you're modernist or postmodernist, you're you're holding to a worldview that is antagonistic to a Judeo-Christian worldview, which is what undergirds both the Declaration of Independence and our Constitution. So you can see that what what we're seeing in terms of the chaos of our culture is a worldview clash between those who still hold to that which has been revealed by God through the Bible and those who have rejected the Bible. And if they're consistent with their rejection of the Bible, then they cannot logically affirm the uniqueness and distinctiveness of the human race although lots of them do they try to walk with with their feet in both camps and in the way in which we can take advantage of that when we're talking to people is to ask questions that force them to recognize this uh, inconsistency in their belief system because they want oh they want love and that's a that's a high value for them, but who cares if everybody's just a cog in a machine and nobody and everybody's just the product of billions of years of physical uh evolution? nothing special about them at all they're just the latest manifestation of the accident that occurred when uh, uh, some uh, some gooey swamp got hit with lightning so That's the difference, and they have no way to explain why we have problems because the last part is that in Christianity the fundamental problems of humans since Adam is spiritual death, sin, and depravity. Thus humans are not progressing on their own towards a glorious utopic future. In fact, only Christ's death and trust in him for personal redemption provides any hope that 's the alternative, one or the other, and so we live in this world uh, where there are these these conflicts are manifested. The Bible clearly teaches there is an absolute truth. Jesus said in john eight thirty two a statement that is grossly misapplied by many universities. He said, "'You shall know the truth,' and by the truth he meant the Word of God, the re- the special revelation of Scripture. He did not mean philosophy. He did not mean geology and biology and zoology. He did not mean any of the philosophical systems that are taught in liberal arts departments. He meant the Word of God. "'You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free.'" And in uh, the famous confrontation or the famous interrogation by Pilate of Jesus brought this out. Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And so Pilate scoffs. He says, what is truth? And it's interesting, when, he, when Jesus says truth, he has, uses the, the article, making it definite, specific. When Pilate responds, he drops the article, which means he's talking about the universal principle, and he is scoffing at the idea of qualitative universal truth. What is truth? In John 14:6, Jesus identified himself with truth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Those are three objects to that verb. So he is saying, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He is making authoritative statements that he embodies truth, absolute, eternal, never-changing truth. And he defines that further in his high priestly prayer in John 17, uh, 17 and 19. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. It is God's word, God's special revelation to man that is the truth. It's immutable. It's eternal. It's uh, the. It's true. In every century, it's true in every culture. It's true no matter what the circumstances are or how much you wish it weren't. It is absolute. And Jesus then goes on to say, for they, their sakes I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. The only way that there is uh, any hope, the way, only way there is salvation, the only way there is a spiritual growth and happiness and meaning and value in life is if it is based on the everlasting, immutable truth of the Word of God. Now in the last Clause that we have in verse 25 is one that is also f- pregnant with meaning. In this last phrase we read, and I have translated it, because we are members of one another. Many translations will translate that with a for, F-O-R. But the Greek word that is used there is the word hadi, which means Because. And it is a causal statement that we are to speak the truth with our neighbor because of something, because we are members of one another. So this narrows the meaning of neighbor. And uh, we think of neighbor as a person who lives next door, the person who lives down the street. But the idea of the the, the root meaning, uh, of this word is the idea of someone who is uh, close in some some way uh, close in proximity and it says because we are members of one another and this is the Greek word melos and it refers to members of a human body uh, your limbs your legs your arms it's never used of the of animal limbs, never used of animal legs, never used in relation to animals in that way. It is distinctive in the way it is used, even in secular Greek, it is for humans, not for animals. And so it is, and it is also used of members of an organism, not members of an organization. You can be a member of something like the Rotary Club And there are members of the Rotary Club all over the United States, but it's not an internal unity with one another. It's an organism, though, means that there is a special form of unity between every single believer in Jesus Christ. And so this word is used uh, throughout Romans and 1 Corinthians to refer to the members of, Of the body of Christ. This comes naturally out of what Paul has already said earlier in chapter 4, talking about uh, the church. He said, But speaking the truth, notice again the emphasis on the truth, uh, speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, the authority, that is Christ, from whom the whole body, that's all believers, Joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. Now, in that analogy, every joint that is supplying, every joint are the other believers in Christ. Working by, um, according to the effective working, excuse me, back up, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part, every single believer does its part every one of us has a role to play every one of us is important and significant in fact there are a lot of people i think that uh, we tend to look at pastors they're out in front they're they're the leader but i will be the first to tell you that i can't do what i do if it weren't for an army of volunteers who are doing all of the tech work and all of the administrative work of the local church and everything else. Without them, I'm standing here talking to myself. But they are the ones who get it out there. They're the ones who make things happen. They are the ones who are serving the Lord and ministering to the body in anonymity. And I think that, that there aren't going to be that many pastors who are that close to Jesus. I think there's going to be lots of people who, uh, stamped envelopes and licked envelopes and set up internet connections and technology and did all of those things that are going to be a lot closer to the Lord than, than pastors are. So this idea of the emphasis on every part, it's really uh, it's, it doesn't use the word melos here, but that's what it's talking about. Every part does its share. Every part causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. In Romans twelve four and 5, we have the word used twice. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. This is foreign to the entire culture of Western civilization, which is built upon the importance of the individual. The individual is important, but the individual in the way... Our, our worldview functions is not a part of everybody else. This is an emphasis on both the unity of the body and the role of the individual, but too often the way we see things is the role of the individual is at the expense of the unity of the body. 1 Corinthians twelve twelve through 14, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also in Christ. It's like the Trinity. It's one and it's many. If you emphasize the one to the exclusion of the many, you have a problem. If you emphasize the many at the exclusion of the one, you have another problem. It's both. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit, for in fact the body is not one member but many. So this is the emphasis. That leads us to what we'll cover next time, and that is what the Bible teaches about our ministry to one another with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to... Study your word and to be reminded that we live in the midst of a worldview war. That uh, in our own souls this happens from the time that we are first saved and we first become part of the new man. And we have put off the old man, but we still think like those who are uh, in the old man. And we have to have our mind renewed by your word. We have to learn to think differently. And believers who are truly transformed by the renewing of their mind are going to be set in conflict with the world around us. And that's the battle. And we have to learn how to live with those who uh, live on the basis of a fantasy who hate and despise us. We are to love our enemies. We are to approach them with grace, and we are to be ambassadors to them from the high court of heaven to give them the great news, the good news that Jesus Christ died for their sins, and they can have everlasting life on the basis of his death on the cross. And it is that good news that we can all become new creatures in Christ, but it's not on the basis of our works. It's not on, our ba- on the basis of our ritual. It is on the basis of trusting in Christ's work on the cross alone. And, Father, we pray that you would make that clear to any who's listening, anyone who's here, anyone on the Internet, anyone who listens 5, 10, 15 years from now, that they, that would be made clear to them that it is through your grace, your kindness, that it is by grace through faith that we have this salvation and not of works lest any man should boast. So, Father, we thank you that we have this word that transforms us, and we pray that others will be transformed by starting at the cross, trusting in Christ, and moving then towards spiritual maturity. And you ask that we all evaluate, where are we? Are we really willing to move towards spiritual maturity, or do we just want to be comfortable? That's the issue for believers. But for the unbeliever, the issue is the cross. Trust in Jesus Christ. Believe in him, and you will have everlasting life, the Scripture says. And we pray this in his name. Amen.